Lessons from the Past was the theme for the Pacific West Fastener Association dinner meeting on June 7, 2010. Industry veterans were on hand to share stories about the fastener industry, particularly in Southern California. There were plenty of stories about the late Mel Kirsner of Pell-Mell Supply in San Diego, California. Mel left money to the PacWest in his will, and the Association Board honored this legacy by naming the new scholarship program in Mel's memory. A golf outing fundraiser for the scholarship program took place earlier that day. The panel was emceed by Steve Pettyjohn of Exact Industries. Panelists included Ben Benson of B2B Imports, Andy Cohn of Duncan Bolt, John Dooley of J.D. Dooley & Associates, Jim Law of Ababa Bolt, and Richard Proto of Ultra Fastener. My favorite Mel story is actually a Barry Porteous story and a Jim Law story. Um, Barry used to talk about when he was in college, he would have a summer job working for Porteous Fasteners, and he would be the, the backup truck to go to San Diego when they had more, than, more stuff than they could ever fit on the normal Porteous truck going down there. And so he would, uh, when they said, hey, you've got to take the, flat, the steak bed down there and you know, deliver the rest of the stuff. So he said I would uh, call my girlfriend who lived in San Clemente and tell her to get ready to go to the beach. And I would uh, throw my surfboard in the truck and uh, stop and pick her up. And then we'd go to San Diego and make the deliveries. You know, and then we'd come back up and find a nice beach and surf for the afternoon. And uh, he says, so one of the first times I did that, uh, I stop at Pell-Mell and I'm unloading, uh, you know, and there's this old crusty looking guy in uh, uh, sandals and shorts out on the loading dock. And he's like, who the hell are you? What are you doing with a surfboard on the goddamn truck? You know, on and on and on and on. So that was Barry's introduction to Mel which uh, made a deep impression on him. And, uh, but I thought it was pretty cool, you know. Then they'd surf the afternoon, and then he, I think his grandmother lived in one of the nice communities in Orange County, and they would stop there for dinner on the way back. And Barry told his story a couple of times at different fastener meetings, and afterwards I'm standing outside with Jim Law at the coffee counter, and he says to me, so uh, what I really want to do is go up and uh, ask him, what would he do if he had an employee today who did that? Barry, was that Jenny that you picked up at uh, San Clemente? Uh, I, I can tell a story of, of uh, Mel when, uh, I don't know what year it was, but I know I was just a young punk salesman uh, just put on the road from National Screw back in the, the good old days. And I was down in San Diego area trying to locate some business and I happened to run into this I'd heard about this pell-mell supply so I walked in the door and, and uh, walked up to the counter and I, and I commented about I'd like to meet and the guy said and I will use the word heck what the heck do you want and I said well I, I'm with National Screw he says and he again heck with you and, and uh, why do we need you and I'm going well what, could I at least talk to the purchasing agent and he, again, what the heck for? You got nothing that we need. And um, so I said, well, can I give you my card to give to him? And he said, okay. And he, and he handed me his card, Mel Kirshner, president. 
And I thought, here's this same guy, ruddy hair, you know, and in a Hawaiian shirt and, and toe pushers, and, and here I was in a suit and tie in those days, and I was completely out of place. But in time, he became a really good customer. He, he, he bought uh, wing nuts and cotter pins from me. Yeah, that's them. So this is supposed to be lessons from the past, and what are the lessons? Wow. Let's see. Right. Mel was a very successful company. They kept their front door locked. Yes. They didn't let anybody in. Yeah, you, you know, he, he, he didn't want you just wandering in to buy fasteners because you probably were a bum. So I don't know. Is there a lesson there for anybody? Either that or you have something to hide. You know? Yeah, there you go. Hey, Andy, it, it did allow us in 75 to get a toehold in, uh, in San Diego yeah, County yeah. because he was like that. He, he truly was. He locked the front door, and he wouldn't let customers in. And people like us came along and were able to take some of the market, not much, but because he hadn't. Huh? That was your business No, the, biz, the business plan was to get out of L.A. smog. <laughs> that was the business plan. Well, I mean, there is an actual message there, you know, you can get to a point where you think that, you know, you control things and ultimately uh, the world usually proves you're wrong. You know, I don't, I don't know how much humor there is in that. <laughs> well, I'm going to just say, share something. You know, I, I came from a background at McMaster Carr and I started there in 1972. And talking about locking the doors, we used to have, we had a full range of product. But uh, the receptionist would always know when it was a fastener salesman because they had a, a leisure suit on with a white belt and uh, contrasting stitching. And, and they said, oh, fastener guy, call the fastener buyers, you know, because everyone else was uh, very, very conservative, Midwest concerned companies that would walk in with the Brooks Brothers suits on. But the fastener salesmen looked like they were going to catch on fire. And, <laughs> That had to be but, 70s. Yeah, that was the early 70s. That's that that's right, Benson right. I think that I, actually, I I, I want to say something. No, the, actually, when the Porteous family came in to sell the McMaster car, they were the first guys that had suits on with starch collars. There, I had never seen a faster salesman other than that. You know, other than the the, uh, the double net leisure suits. So well, we had uh, we always wore suits and ties. Everybody did in those days, and and we could always tell the Bethlehem Bolt people. The Bethlehem Bolt people. Because they um, uh, they always wore a hat. Wow! And you yeah. go to a convention, they had these old uh, what did you used to call those things anyway, just a fedora, fedora yeah. hat. Yeah. You know? well, no, it's a regular felt type hat. And that was Bethlehem. And I don't know if any of you here, any everybody over sixty five, stand up. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody here over 65 except... You better stand up. Well, stand up. Okay. Uh, how many... Oh, you have, to, you have to realize back in the 50s and 60s, that everything was suit and tie. Yeah. And yeah. hats had gone out except for Bethlehem. But you had Bethlehem Steel making bolts and nuts. You had National Screw that I worked for. You had Russell Bolt, RB&W. You know Russell Bolt, right, Barry? And um, um, I, Great Lakes, are they still around? No. Yeah. I mean, there was, there was numerous companies that only exist today. Steve, uh, Steve, I'm trying to remember the first time I called on you, did I have a suit and tie or was I wearing a white belt? I can't no, no, you had a suit and tie on. Yeah. 
Make sure you're yeah. close to the but mic when you the read. The other thing <laughs> that I think that's relevant and interesting about that is that the people these guys were calling on weren't fastener distributors because there was no such thing. In other words, the fastener distributor specialist didn't exist. It was mill supply houses. It was McMaster Car. Yeah. It was yeah. Abco Industrial and people like that. And it was Do just common. one of a thousand, you know, they all carried 50 or 100 lines and fasteners were just one of them. Well, but you realize, Andy, at that time, too, we had, in California, we had, what, seven automobile assembly plants? We had wheel manufacturers, uh, Norris Thermidor, they made wheels, they made millions of rivets. You had Bowers Electric making electric outlets. You had Appleton Electric. You had Steel City, all making outlet boxes. And at National Screw, we would, you know, we, we made seven million screws a day. A, a plant in the plant's still there on, on Garfield Avenue in Commerce. Uh, it's now called Monogram Aerospace. But um, uh, you know we had a plant in Cleveland, Ohio that made 20 million screws a day, and that's kaputs. And how many manufacturers do you know in California today that would be using eight times? They'd be giving an order for 10 million screws. Slaglock in South San Francisco would buy. Five million eight by three quarter Phillips flathead brass combination wood screw, machine screw threads, at a crack, and all that business is either now in China or Mexico or Taiwan or doesn't even exist anymore. So we had in, Cal in Southern California we had uh, five or six major fastener manufacturers. Um, so we didn't, there was, the distributor didn't hardly exist except you had Union Hardware, you had California Hardware, you had all the big wholesale hardware people who bought a lot of packaged goods and sold it to the lumber yards and the hardware stores. You know, I don't remember all this because I'm a lot younger than he is. <laughs> hey, hey to, to, lighten the, to lighten this up, um, uh, Barry, could you tell him about the time you threw my ass out of your warehouse? <laughs> <laughs> What's time? Which time? <laughs> True story. True story. He threw me right out. Come on, tell him. Tell him how you how that. Now you tell him. No. 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 I'd, I'd rather tell a Mel story. Okay. Uh, you, you know, everybody everybody that knew Mel knew him as being very gregarious. Um, you know, when, when as, as Andy told the story, when I first met him, the first time I just had a surfboard, and it was, what the blank is that surfboard doing on the truck? And the second time I had a girl, and, and, he, and he said, oh, my God, he's not only got a blankety surfboard, he's got a blankety broad in the truck. I'm calling his old man. And he did. <laughs> but Mel, Mel was, he was, he was, you know, outspoken, gregarious, whatever, but, but there was a soft side to Mel, too. And um, a number of years ago, he and Judy uh, did a display at the, at the um, Columbus show. They had a double booth with all of their stuff before he had built the, uh, the museum. And he had all the stuff, and he was traveling across the country with his mobile home, gathering up stuff for his museum. And Judy's telling me the story. This is the first time I'd ever met Judy. What a character she is. And she's gone... We look like the Clampets. Every stop we make, Mel's got to buy something. And when he buys something, we've got to completely unload the mobile home and repack it because it's just full. We got stuff on the roof. We got stuff. We can't even sleep in the thing anymore because there's stuff all over the bedroom, all this stuff. 
So then I'm talking to Mel, and he's going, uh, and he said, God, I, I saw, I forget where it was. It was like in Oklahoma or somewhere. And he, I saw this great barn wood. It would be perfect for the floor of, of my museum. But I don't know where I'm going to put it when I drive home. I, I don't have any more room. And I said, well, where are you going from here? Well, I'm going up to Cleveland, and then I'm going up to New York, and I got, you know, all these places. And I said, well, you going to Lake Erie Screw when you get up to Cleveland? And he goes, well, I, I thought about it. And I said, well, go by there. I said, we get a truck about once a week out of, out of uh, Lake Erie coming out to California. And just go in there and introduce yourself and tell them I said it was okay. And just unload whatever you got and just whatever will fit on pallets. Just unload it all there and, and, uh, and then they'll ship it out with the stuff out to L.A. and we'll get it to you down in San Diego. So I see him, you know, after he gets back and everything and he appreciated that. I said, and when I told him, I said, now, I said, if you get a chance to meet George Wasmer, I said, ask him if you can go see his car collection. He's got a pretty good car collection. He's got a Cord. He's got a couple old Lincolns, some old Cadillacs. He's got uh, an old T-Bird. He's got, you know, he's got about 15, 20 cars, but they're, they're really pristine U.S. cars. So he gets back, and I said, uh, so, Melvin, did, did you get to, uh, you know, I knew that he'd gotten to Lake Erie because all this stuff arrives. And, and I said, did you, did you get a chance to meet George? Well, yeah. And I said, did you ask him about going out to the museum? You know, it's out of his house. He's got a couple of barns full of cars. And he goes, well, I didn't feel like I should. I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, he walks out and he says, what the blanket are you doing here? And he goes, uh, well, Barry Porteous said it would be okay if I unloaded a bunch of stuff here because you ship him a, a truck or whatever and, 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 he, and he could, I could put this stuff on the truck. And he goes... Why don't you take it down to St. Joe, Indiana? He buys a hell of a lot more stuff from Nucor than he buys from me. <laughs> so he said, so I, I didn't think I should ask him about going out and seeing the cars. <laughs> that's, that's very I don't think these will work on Comedy Central, but everyone knows these fastener jokes, I guess. Uh, uh, Sir Proto, you want to say something? Sure. One of the things I remember specifically when I started this business in, I don't know, somewhere in the 50s, is that we always talked to guys. I was on the sales desk, so we talked to Mike and Joe and Pete and Tony and all of the male parts of the, uh, of the uh, population. And uh, I noticed somewhere along in the 60s that all of a sudden we were talking to Suzanne's and Kathy's and Joyce's and and Judy's and the uh, female half of our uh, world. And uh, just to acknowledge that the ladies in this business are very powerful and doing one heck of a job. And the other thing that I wanted to share with you if, uh, is that I, you know, this, this evening was supposed to be about hilarity and fun. I'm not sure about hilarity, but fun. And uh, so I took the uh, uh, opportunity to Google fastener jokes. And I wanted to share a couple of them with you, if you, if you don't mind. Now, now, one of the things when you Google fasteners or fastener joke is you can't help but, but coming up with zipper. So here's one. The man who invented the zipper fastener was today honored with a lifetime peerage. He will now be known as the Lord of the Flies. Uh, I need a rim shot on that one. I uh, 
I did the uh, nut and bolt thing, and it said an inmate escaped from a lunatic hospital, and he was sex-starved. He raped the first woman he saw on the road. The tabloid carried the headline, Nut, Bolts, and Screws. <laughs> and, of course, you can't put screw in without getting the... These are funny. Can I get a copy of these? Yeah, sure. You can't... You can't <laughs> they're, they're old, and they're funny. But uh, you can't put screw in without having the old how many... Blah, blah, blahs that it take to screw in a light bulb. So here's the one I like the best. Uh, how many Californians does it take to screw in a light bulb? Californians don't screw in light bulbs. They screw in hot tubs. <laughs> no veil jokes. Keep going. And finally, I don't know how many of you knew which one is Richard, but on stage left. Right there. Yeah. There's the picture. Picture right there. Oh, there it is on stage left. And uh, it was kind of funny because Vicky said, "Hey, I found this old picture from the founding." Uh, the, I don't know. I don't remember a lot of these guys. The Jerry Cooklin actually is on the the bottom, uh, on st- sitting on stage right, and he was literally the the brains behind the first LAFA, the Los Angeles Fastener Association. He was the guy. It ran Amalgamated Screw, I believe was the name of the company. And uh, he was a genius, I think, in a lot of cases. Uh, I don't think he's around with us anymore, but he, um, he, he and I were, had a dinner together and decided, hey, we both came from Chicago. Chicago had a bolt nut association. Why the hell shouldn't Los Angeles? And uh, out of that, kind of like the whole thing got going. Forty-seven. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't. Uh, I'm thinking. It I'd say from be, the ties, mid '60s. Had, had to be. Yeah, I'm thinking 1960, late '60s, someplace like that. And high shots is next to me. Uh, I can see. Manny Greenberg is the. Uh, Second from the uh, end over there on the on the on the right. Wait, which one's man? Who? Greenberg. Greenberg is uh, there right stage right? second from stage right on top. And I don't remember the rest of the people. I can't tell you the names. Yeah, that's what we need, a laser pointer. Who's in the white standing up there? High shot. Is that that's high, sh- high shot standing up, yeah. Oh, high shot. Oh, yeah, okay. Wow. Wow. But that was the first, uh, or the first, I think the first board of the Los Angeles Faster Association. And we worked hard and partied hard, so, you know. About it today, the only difference is that when I started, uh, I don't even want to think about what year it was, but I worked in the warehouse for a year at Bay City Screw in San Carlos, California, and then I moved in the office and started doing the expediting. And uh, the expediting was all done by Speednote. And uh, I would, to this day, I can tell you that. Uh, 
uh, Southern Screw was 6465 Corvette, Los Angeles 90040, because I wrote it about 30 times a day. Please advise when you'll ship the rest of purchase order so-and-so. And we mailed them, you know, and somebody at the other end uh, would uh, uh, expedite the material or look for it and then mail the answers back. And the only difference I see today is, is that each of you and each of us is doing five times more work than I was doing then because we do it on email, we do it by fax, we can do it to multiple people at one time. Um, but the work isn't any different, and what the customers want isn't any different. It, it, you know, in that sense, it's still the same. Um, Southern Screw is gone, and most of the other people are. As a matter of fact, uh, most of the people who answered those speed notes are still in the business. Uh, Rem Youngman, uh, who's at Star now, and uh, Tim Sonati, and a few other people like that who work down here in Los Angeles. But, uh, you know, other than that, every, uh, I don't see where it's any different. It's just faster, harder, cheaper. I mean, if all the manufacturers are gone here in Southern California, how come there's more distributors? At one point, when we started Duncan or when we bought Duncan in 1988, I don't know why, but I did a survey in all the yellow pages from San Diego basically up through, you know, 818. So there were 420 fastener people listed under fasteners. You know. And they're all here tonight. Yeah. <laughs> no, they're all home answering their emails. Well, you know, the one common thread amongst all of us, I would say, is that we all love the fastener industry. I, I know I do. I wouldn't be in it if I, I wasn't in love with it. I'm sure all of you love it. It's been good to everyone here, I think. I mean, you're all here. I tried to leave, and I couldn't leave. I had to come back. So uh, th that is the one thing we all have in common, at, no matter what level of uh, supply we're at. Well, I agree, because one of the four Fs that I do is fasteners. <laughs> one of the four Fs? Is that what you said? I'd like to share something as far as historical I started in the faster industry in 1956 with a manufacturer back in Chicago. And I was the in reason kindergarten then, by the way. <laughs> Are you that young? This manufacturer uh, was the originator, held the patent on the stamped wingnut. Stamped wingnut was on every single automobile that was manufactured. It was on every single ammunition box in World War II. From there, they graduated into making thumb screws, D60 thumb screws, et cetera, et cetera. The one thing that I think, I, and I couldn't find a bigger copy, but you're all familiar with the fastener. The guy. wall chart. You know, the wall chart. Well, if any of you have really studied it, you'll notice that there's a fastener down there that you probably say, what in the world is a Holt fastener, Holt head fastener? Well, that was the owner of Central Screw Company back in Keene, New Hampshire, which started in business in 1941. And Grant Holt then was involved with Central Screw in Chicago. Ernie Payne was my boss in the engineering department and made this chart. At the same time, when I started, I was drawing pictures of fasteners in India, Inc., so that then they could send, write the dimensions in on the 
vellums and send it down to the headers. Because prior to that, they would just write little notes and send the tooling down. The slotters and the threaders were all run on by belts, belt drive, and it was a learning curve all the way through. You talk about manufacturing in California. When I was with Central Screw Company, transferred out here, division manager, etc., then we purchased a fastener factory in Sonoma, California. And it was across the street from Sebastiani's Winery. And it was owned by August Sebastiani's sister. So we bought this fastener factory. It was running full blast. And at that little factory was the first drywall screw that was ever made. They had dedicated a header. And they worked a lot of people. Wagner was the one, and that's where the drywall screw was started. At that point in time, we had factories in Frankfort, Kentucky, Keene, New Hampshire, Chicago, Illinois, distri distribution in L.A., and we had this little factory in Sonoma. So we, of course, took over the drywall part of it, and we were pushing them as fast as we could, but we were trying to get the other factories in our same company to make them, and they couldn't make them. So they all sent engineering people out to learn how to make a bugle head drywall screw, which today you take for granted, and they're made in every country in the world. And the end of the story ends in 1970 when the factory caught on fire. <laughs> uh, I can elaborate on that story, though, because uh, Brad Wagner, who uh, was the original Wagner, would give, start giving business to National Screw to make them. He gave us all your samples from your place. And uh, every time we were running all with millions of drywall screws, Brad would come in with a new pair of roll thread dies from Reed. And he'd walk out right into the shop, go out the front door into the shop, go out in there, and he'd, and he'd get hold of the roll thread foreman and put these on the machine. And, of course, uh, the management didn't particularly like that, but weren't going to say anything to him because uh, of the volume of business he was given at the time. Um, but I mean, it was millions of screws, and and this was probably right after your place burnt. Right after your place burnt down, I don't right. know exactly what year it was, but uh, it was 70, uh, 70s. Yeah. yeah, Well, actually, it was in the. It was before the 70s because. Uh, I had been transferred to uh, the Seattle area in 65, and it was prior to my going to Seattle. So maybe he was playing both ends against them. People don't want to know about actually making this stuff. They want, you know, the dirt stories. <laughs> uh, I, I got a good story. Of you mean who started the fire? <laughs> yeah. Well, I was going to say... Uh, what they reminded me of was, and I can't remember who told me this story, but swears it's true, how did the Industrial Fasteners Institute get started? You know, it was a bunch of guys in the fastener business sitting in a bar mm -hmm. in Cleveland, Ohio, and one of them went over, saw another guy, and he walked over to him and said, Fred, you know, we got to figure something out here because... You know, I got a customer, I got one of these OEMs who's always bitching at me that our nuts don't fit on the screws you sell. You know, and so they literally sat down and on the back of a napkin came up with some basic min and max specifications for, you know, let's try and make them so that they'll fit together. 
um, you know, and everybody talks about it very gloriously and, and you know, uh, lot, lots of fame and fortune there, but that's pretty close to the reality of it. You know, it, it, in the way olden days, if you read the history of the bold nun industry, you made both yourself. You were a blacksmith, it, you could custom fit the nut to match whatever screw you or your assistant had made that day. But once you started to run them on production machinery, it was quite obvious that they needed different factories, different equipment, totally different industries, but they did still need to work together. Well, you know, I've noticed a lot of second-generation people here from the faster industry. Can I get a show of hands who are involved in the faster industry and maybe who have kids involved? Yeah, Don. Uh, And I've known you for many, many years. And... uh, why don't you uh, share a story from your dad? Can you do that? <laughs> we could be here all night. <laughs> Which one? This goes. Tell us a string story. My dad was Luke Sullivan, who got his start working for Woody Crack at, at Southern Bolton Screw on Vale Avenue in Montebello and then left them and started his own company, Sullivan Bolt. And going back to the, the great fastener shortage, the big steel shortage of maybe 1972, 73, for some reason you just could not get steel, which meant you could not get steel products, bolts, nuts, screws. And my dad had always had a very good relationship with the various steel warehouses, um, Ryerson Steel, uh, Jorgensen, U.S. Steel Supply. So he was able to get raw materials, but not as many as anybody needed. And he had uh, a customer, I don't even know if they're still in business, um, Cisco, Cisco Fasteners. And they... Coast Industrial Supply. They placed an order with him for a very large amount, and he called all the various steel warehouses and dug up all of the steel and managed to make all of these bolts that they needed. And within about two weeks, somebody else from Coast called him and placed the same exact order. And he said, you know, I think you guys have made a mistake that you've already ordered this product and I've already made it and you can probably come pick it up anytime. And whoever the person was in purchasing said, I don't know who you think you are, but I work for Coast and I know this is what I need and you can either provide it or not. And he said, yeah, okay, I can provide it. And he actually sold an invoice, the same product, to the same company twice, and they paid. (laughs) Story. Is there anyone else who would like to share a story? Yeah, and I thought you were going to talk about his technical expertise. Um, Could I I have... uh, Suzanne, I I know you've got a story. I've got one more I'd like to talk about, if I could. Oh, absolutely. Uh, This goes... You saw photographs of it on earlier in 1990. We were at uh, Montana or Wyoming, I forget where. Kalispell. And we were on a river rafting. Yes. And um, uh, we got on the boat. It was, uh, I, I think Jenny was there. Was 
was not. Joe, you're not there? No, it was, that was not that river rafting. Okay, well, it was, you were there sitting next to me because I saw it in the picture, and my wife was behind me, and Barry, you were behind Sid. Um, and we got in this. Andy was a little bit heavier at that time than he is today. And we got in this boat, and we were shoved off. We were all wearing vests and such, you know. And, and that boat, uh, right off, we hadn't been on the boat for 15 seconds when we hit some whirlpool in this big rock, and Andy went flying over the edge. And I reached in, and I grabbed the, the, the shoulders of that vest, and I don't know how I got him out of that water, but he come barreling out of that water with his bathing suit down around his knees. <laughs> And my dear wife here of 55 years, by the way, next Friday will be married 55 wow, congratulations. years. She had this big hairy butt in her face, and she's pulling up on these, on these bathing suit. And uh, Barry's, I th did you fall out too, Barry? I don't remember. No, it was Bob's wife. Oh, okay. And... Uh, so anyway, we finally got Andy in, and that I think that night or the next night they had a big, the normal Saturday night dinner, and I got this award, which I brought with me tonight. It's the WAFTA First Annual Lifesaver Award presented to John Dooley, August 26, 1995. I, I ate the original Lifesavers that were on there, so I had to go out and buy some more. My wife and I went to, what, five different stores to find Lifesavers? <laughs> I, I guess they don't make them anymore. Don't we? we finally found them at Albertsons or something. So anyway, I'd like to present, re return this now to Andy. Oh, and thank him for, for all the many, many years we've been friends, cohorts. And... <laughs> my phone's not on. <laughs> no, 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 but you had paddle all over. Oh, paddle all over now, my phone. I was going to tell you uh, that one thank of the you. problems with uh, being old enough to be up here is that sometimes your memory goes a little bit. <laughs> yeah. And, and there have been actually been two rafting trips. And the one that John is referring to was not the one in Montana. Okay. It was the one in New Mexico. Wherever we were in 1995. <laughs> Vail. Vail, right. Aspen, Colorado. Well, Thank you, Kathy. And the reason I say that is because Barry, I don't think Barry was there. It was Bob and his wife were in the boat, and my daughter Elizabeth and Virginia and you and Sid and me. And you did haul me out of the water like, wow, I was really impressed. And we, we that night at the dinner, we joked that, uh, yeah, I guess Barry was in the boat too because I went out, Bob's wife, and I, but Chris, yeah, both went out over everybody, yeah. literally. Yeah, there was two of you in the water. Over, because I remember, and I don't know if it was me or somebody else, another smart ass, but somebody had the, the headline for Finn that uh, importer crushed by large customer. <laughs> you know, no, he didn't. But that's what we. That's what. That's what Vicky said at dinner. He was going to, you know, the next day. Has anyone else got a quick story they want to share? A quick story? Yeah, quick. One of the audience. Okay. How about Richard? Yeah. This is a Melvin story. 
I met Melvin when I was 15 years old. And my dad had decided to drive to San Diego to make a sales call. And I had my learner's permit, so this would be a good opportunity for me to get a little driving in. And, and he told me that, you know, I would be meeting these customers of his and we would do this stuff. So I had myself all dressed up in, you know, the, the full Tricia Nixon outfit, basically. And he called on the customer and then he said, I w we're going to go down to this place called Pell-Mell. I, I want to see these people. Have any of you heard about the day the roof caved in at Pell-Mell? I was there. And I guess there had been some rain, and at that time, Pell-Mell had a, like a loft attic, and most of it was up above their, their will call counter. And they didn't just store extra files and things like that, but they actually had kegs and, and product up there. And we walked in the door, and I was barely introduced, and the whole building collapsed in the will call counter all around us. And, and if you know Mel, um, he wasn't quiet about this catastrophe happening. And none of the people in there were quiet. And even my dad, who at that point was, you know, his, his swearing and profanity was limited, um, let out with some things that I was really surprised to hear him say. And we actually had to kind of dig ourselves out. And Mel was just going absolutely crazy. And he and my dad got into this discussion about whether it was proper for him to use certain expressions in front of his daughter even though he, as my father, was allowed to use those same expressions under stressful situations. And maybe half an hour went by when there was complete chaos reigning, and everybody kind of got themselves out and calmed down and kind of looked around. And, and from, Mel actually apologized to me for using those expressions, and I really hadn't had any kind of experience, you know, like that before. It was just great fun for me. And he became one of really the most decent people I've ever known in my life. That he was one of those guys that seemed to put a lot of energy in giving the appearance of being the most hateful and offensive person you might ever want to meet. But within five minutes of being in his company, you realized he was actually one of the most decent people you would ever want to meet. And there were, he had a daughter who was a few years older than me, and I could actually call and say, Mel, my dad's acting like an idiot. And he'd say, I'll take care of it. And he would call my dad and say, let it go, let it go. <laughs> and my dad would say, who is this guy calling me, telling me how to raise my kid? And I'd say, Mel, let it go. <laughs> so that is my all-time favorite Mel story, the day the roof caved in at Pell-Mell. <laughs> well, thanks for sharing that. Uh, by the way, I want to remind everyone that uh, this session is has been recorded for a podcast from uh, the www.pac-west.org and will be uh, broadcast on 
fully threaded radio. I don't know if you're familiar with that. So, Okay. All right. So anyway, keep that in mind. I think I'm going to wrap it up. I want to thank the panel for being here. And... Uh, <laughs>